1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Dr. Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, where I specialize in values and mindfulness-based approaches to therapy.
2: And I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And from coast to coast, I am Dr. Yael Schoenbren, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor
3: at Brown University specializing in evidence-based relationship treatments.
2: In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics in psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research
3: we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to flourish in our own lives. Thank you for listening
1: to Psychologists Off the Clock.
3: Hi, this is Dr. Yael Schonbrunn. We're going to be talking today about a book called Practical Wisdom, The Right Way to Do the Right Thing by Barry Schwartz, who I interviewed. Um, And Barry talks about what wisdom is and sort of how we've gone astray from tapping into our internal wisdom in our modern society. And he talks about um, how rule-governed behavior and incentivizing behaviors really interferes with our ability to act and choose wise behaviors. So I'm curious, I'm here talking with Debbie and Diana before the interview, have there been times for you guys where rules have gotten in the way of you guys tapping into your wisdom?
1: Of course. Yes. A lot of examples. (laughs) Actually, think of an example for me as almost the opposite, where I was doing the rule-governed behavior of graduate school. And in my instinct and internal wisdom told me I needed to stop and take a break, and I ended up actually listening to it and withdrawing from graduate school. And that was probably one of the most influential and important moves that I've made in my career because it really shaped the trajectory of my training. I went on to be a yoga instructor and learning about mindfulness so that when I came back to graduate school, I was able to integrate some of that work into my research and, and career. So definitely listening to that inner voice, that inner wisdom, and not always being so structured what it's supposed to look like in terms of the rules. How about you, Debbie? Yeah, for
2: me, I was thinking about a rule that's deeply embedded in me about sort of being nice and being, I, I have a bit of a people pleaser rule. Like I have to have everybody like me and I have to, you know, be sort of the nice person. And so uh, the rule sometimes needs to be broken. Like my inner wisdom is telling me sometimes that there are people times that I need to speak up or I need to do things that are going to make me not as much likable or liked. And so I sometimes I really have to summon up some some courage and some wisdom to break that rule.
3: I love both of those examples. And I think that I can draw on a similar parallel idea of sort of finding myself following particular rules when it comes to parenting and finding that I do better and I'm happier when I sort of check out from all the shoulds that are everywhere we look as parents and and really checking into what works for me. And the example that um, comes to mind is this idea that good parents are always enriching their kids and in um, at the age that some of my two older kids are at, you know, part of the enrichment is having your kids signed up for classes every day of the week and every weekend. And, you know, for a while I would really try to do that or if I wasn't doing that would just feel terribly guilty and like I was failing my children and and sort of um, not acting, uh, behaving in a way that was sort of up to the standard of what good parents do. But more recently, I've decided, you know, if it doesn't work for me, then there's lots of other ways that um, I can really enjoy parenthood and, and therefore create joyful experiences for my kids that don't require them to be in classes every day.
2: Yeah, that's a compelling one, though. It's, it's I feel that pressure, too.
1: And I, I actually it's also helping your kids because maybe they're going to be in less rule governed environments if you're allowing them some unstructured play or being at, you know being at home and figuring out what to do with Tinker toys. It allows some of their own creativity and their own wisdom as well. so yeah well, that's
3: a really great I'm point. Like yeah, so thing. maybe we're going to allow them to grow more wisdom at a young tender age, yeah. <laughs> just well, as Aristotle would have wanted <laughs>
1: yeah. Well I'm looking forward to your interview, I can't wait to listen.
3: Hi, this is Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn from Boston, and I'm delighted to be talking today with Dr. Barry Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is a professor emeritus at Swarthmore College and a lecturer at Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. He studies decision-making and wisdom and uses his findings to provide insights into the psychological plagues of modern times. His TED Talks on Decision-Making Wisdom and Work have been viewed millions of times, and in addition to his several books, he has also written for a wide variety of both academic and popular press publications. Today, we're going to discuss Dr. Schwartz's wonderful book called Practical Wisdom, The Right Way to Do the Right Thing. Dr. Schwartz, welcome.
0: Hi, oh, yeah, It's a pleasure to be with you, and please call me Barry.
3: Okay, I will. Um. So Practical Wisdom uh, was such a fun read. It's a wonderful exploration of human nature that crosses Aristotelian philosophy, cognitive psychology, neuroscience, clinical and social psychology. So it's a fascinating and engaging read that will give readers insight into both the classics and modern psychological science, as well as a much deeper understanding of what this concept of practical wisdom is and what the utility for individuals of practical wisdom is. So I wonder if you could start us off by explaining the origin story of this book. What led you to writing a book on the role of practical wisdom in modern life?
0: Be my pleasure, and thank you for such kind words about the book. Um, a close friend and colleague at Swarthmore College, where I spent almost my entire career, named Ken Sharp, and I have taught together, worked together, um, talked together for many, many years. And Ken is a political scientist and a political theorist, and he he specializes in ancient political theory. And we taught a course years ago on the limits of liberalism, as it is ordinarily understood. This notion that each of us is an individual and we make our lives for ourselves. And the aim really should be to keep other people and the government off our backs, that this is a very kind of um, impoverished view of what human life could be at its best. So we taught this class and we've just kept talking over the years and, um, and one, one day, I don't know quite how it happened, we came to the, together to this insight that one consequence of this kind of individualism is the absence of any willingness to rely on people uh, using their judgment and to rely on people having good intentions, wanting to do the right thing. And so in a world, uh, a Hobbesian world, of a war of all against all, what you want to do is A, um, impose a lot of order to protect people from mean and nasty other people, and B, uh, create a system of incentives that will encourage people to do the right thing because you can't count on them to do the right thing on their own because they're so selfish and ruthless. And of course this is embodied this this approach is embodied in the in the moral philosophy of Aristotle which can taught every year. So we started reading Aristotle together and talking about it and decided maybe since the world is dominated by uh this notion that you need to fix things that are broken you need more rules and you need smarter incentives maybe it would be worthwhile to teach a course that pointed out the limitations of rules and incentives as guides to human conduct so we started teaching this course it was incredibly popular with students Uh, we had to we had to fend them off And after doing it for several years, we uh, decided what the hell, we're teaching a course, why not write a book? What well, could be easier. Uh, famous last words. Right. So that turned out to be a nightmare, but happily, we had, in fact, we at some point we abandoned it because it really looked like we were not going to be able to write the book we wanted and have anyone publish it. Why, why was
3: it I, such a nightmare? Well,
0: I mean, a, a mismatch between us and the editor I see. For starters, um, this insistence that everything be made simple, um, even though the ideas are complicated, Yes. you know, because editors want to sell lots of books. And of course, we have no objection to selling lots of books, but not if it means turning your idea into a comic book. Um, so there were a lot of things. Um, well, we were just about to abandon it. And then I got invited to give a talk at TED. Again, I had given one previously on my work on, on the problem of too much choice, and so I gave a talk on wisdom, and the response was overwhelming, uh, uh, which was a shock and incredibly gratifying. I don't know if you know much about the TED conference, but it's, you know, it's all these masters of the universe, none of them older than like 20, and here I am talking about Aristotle. So I figured they would politely, you know, sort of check their email <laughs> until I was finished. And then the next new new shiny object, they were just blown away by it. And that blew us away and encouraged us to just muddle through and come up with a book, which we finally did. So it was not it was not an easy birth, um, but we're very proud of the child. Um, and the focus of the book really is. And I think you can see this most clearly, or your listeners can, in connection with the financial crisis that almost blew up the world economy a decade ago. When that happened, the responses of everybody, uh, critics, commentators, uh, government regulators, everybody, the the response was, we got to make more rules to control the bankers or and or. We have to come up with a set of incentives so that what enables you to do well personally also serves society. And that was it. Rules to hem the bankers in, incentives to encourage them to do the right thing. End of story. And, you know, our view was, no, what's missing is character. You need bankers who want to do the right thing. And, you know, whatever rules you come up with, they'll find a way to circumvent them. And whatever incentives you come up with, they'll find a way to game the system. There's a long history in every domain you look at of people coming up with bulletproof incentives only to discover five years later that people have found a way to game the system and get the rewards without actually delivering the goods. The clearest evidence in my mind of this is in education. You, you know, you, you really put it to teachers, demanding accountability as measured by big tests. How do, how do their kids do on standardized tests? And what happens is teachers teach to the test or they cheat. They change student answers. So test scores keep going up, but students aren't learning any more than they learned before. And this, this lesson gets learned again and again and again. There is no system of incentives that smart people won't find a way around, and there's no substitute for cultivating in people the desire to do right by their students, their patients, their clients, whatever. So we decided to write this book, which was, of course, Aristotle's idea, is that uh, uh, practical wisdom, the Greek word is phronesis, is 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 both the knowledge to figure out the right thing to do, and just as important, the desire to do the right thing. So we wrote this book. That's how it came to be. Long answer to your question.
3: It's a good answer, and it's fascinating because I think that you sort of articulate the way that the system sort of de-incentivizes building of strong character through an effort to help people stay on on a positive course, but part of what is so problematic is this assumption that people need, just sort of backing up, it's a really interesting self-perpetuating problem because I think what you're saying is by assuming that people don't have character and creating infrastructure that has that assumption embedded in it, you, in essence, reinforce bad behavior, which looks like bad character. And what you're saying is we need to really reconsider some of the ways and the assumptions that we make about the way humans are going to behave and set it up with positive uh, assumptions so that we can perpetuate positive behaviors, because the way that it is now is really reinforcing some of the negativity. But I wonder if in that you could actually um, say a little bit more about the ways that you understand rules and incentives being so problematic, because on the face of it, it almost seems counterintuitive, right? We think rules are good for us and that appropriate incentives help us to, you know, do more of the good stuff.
0: Right. Um, So, I mean, first of all, it's kind of interesting why those ideas have become intuitive. I think the reason they're intuitive is that they're so pervasive. So if I asked you how, do you, how do you improve healthcare in the United States? The first thing you're gonna to turn to is, well, how can we regulate the doctors and how can we make it worth their while? Because that's the way we've all been conditioned to think. So that's I agree so that it's intuitive, yeah. but I think it's intuitive for precisely the historical reasons that you're pointing out. Um, uh, we, everybody needs rules. The question is what role are rules meant to play? And I think the right way to think about this is that rules are guidelines. They are not, except in rare circumstances where you can be extremely precise, they're not um, recipes, they're guidelines. Um, And, uh, you know, the way I sometimes talk about this is um, uh, if you're trying to get to um, Copley Square, say, and um, you've got a roadmap, that gets you to Boston, but it doesn't get you to Copley Square. Now you'll never get to Copley Square unless you get to Boston. So you need the roadmap. On the other hand, the roadmap won't get you to Copley Square by itself. And so rules are like the map that gets you to Boston. And then the question is, well, how do I find my way to Copley Square? So rules will give you some guidance about how to interact with a patient if you're a doctor or with a student, if you're a teacher or with your romantic partner. Um, but, the, but the getting it exactly right all, depends on, the, uh, what Aristotle called the priority of the particular, uh, and that requires judgment and you don't, you're not born with judgment. You develop judgment by getting it wrong and learning from your mistakes. If you have to follow rules, you don't ever get the chance to make mistakes because you're following rules that someone else laid down that are highly imperfect. So one way of thinking about it is that a system of rules is an insurance policy against disaster, right? You don't want to end up in Florida when you're heading to Copley Square. So the roadmap at least gets you to Boston. It's an insurance policy against disaster, but it's also a guarantee of mediocrity. Uh, because the rules fit the average case and everybody, every individual is different. Um, And I think this is true of almost any domain that involves interaction between people. Um, People are different. Everyone is unique. Uh, And when you use your judgment, sometimes you'll be wrong. But following rules guarantees that you'll always be wrong.
3: Right. And I I like, I, I think it's such an important point to make that it might help Divert disaster, but it really does limit sort of various excellences that we could otherwise achieve by allowing ourselves to make mistakes. That in in our sort of effort to avoid failure, we actually ensure that we'll never achieve what might otherwise be possible.
0: That's Um, right. And And now you know there not there are some circumstances where you really, you know, you can't afford failure. You don't want surgeons training surgeons to learn by killing patients on the operating table. So it makes it challenging because they're also gonna need to learn from their mistakes, but you need to have somebody hovering, looking over their shoulders to make sure that the mistakes they make are um, correctable and not catastrophic. But that's not true of most of us. You're teaching third grade kids, you're gonna get it wrong and slowly over time, get it closer and closer to right. And next year, you'll have a different crop of kids and you're gonna have to relearn the lessons because the kids you have the next year are different from the kids you had last year. But you hone in faster and faster as you have more experience.
3: Right. As a practicing clinical psychologist, I think that there's a lot of anxiety that people have, fears about about failure. And I think that it it is so common in our day and age to really catastrophize mistakes and, in with time and with perspective, I think it's often the case that we can see, oh, it wasn't as catastrophic as it felt in the moment. But I think that's another place where practical wisdom really serves a purpose in helping people to have that judgment of, is this a catastrophic mistake or failure, or is this an, a learning opportunity that, that feels uncomfortable, but really holds a lot of potential for growth?
0: Yeah, the problem, though, is that you know, people live in a world, and if the world is intolerant of mistakes then it seems only reasonable for people to catastrophize mistakes. And so you need structures, social structures that tolerate mistakes, that acknowledge that the only time you ever learn is by making mistakes and to create spaces where it's permissible to make mistakes and where wise uh, uh, mentors are watching, uh, guiding and correcting. Uh, so it's, it's asking a lot of people to be courageous about trying things and failing in a world that doesn't tolerate failure. Right. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's kind of, uh, the world we live in. I, I know t- teaching, um, you know, Swarthmore has very, has wonderful students, great high school records. You know, it's very hard to get into, uh, and most of the students there think anything less than an A is a failure. And, uh, you know, they're much and because the stakes have gone up so much over the years that I taught there, you know, when I started, even if you were a mediocre student at Swarthmore, you would end up fine. You'd get a good job. You'd get into a good graduate school. Everything would be fine and your life would uh, proceed in the way you wanted. Well, nowadays, students don't believe that's true. They think, uh, you know, a degree from Swarthmore is no guarantee of anything. And the result is, they A, they put enormous pressure on themselves, and B, they're much less willing to experiment, they're much less willing to take risks, because they think failure has real consequences, and they're not wrong. They overestimate, I mean, they're going to do, mostly do fine with a degree from Swarthmore, but it isn't a guarantee the way it was 40 years ago.
2: Right, right. So
3: before before we move on to the next topic, I we've talked a bit about rules, but I I, I think that you're writing in practical wisdom about the the limitations of the way that incentives prompt. Uh, wisdom and, and good behavior uh, is really interesting because again, it's sort of one of these things and, and perhaps it's because the message is so pervasive that appropriately incentivizing people either with, you know, compensation or other awards or recognition will help people to be more motivated, to work harder, to work smarter. And what you write so compellingly about in the book is that it actually in, in many cases can work in the opposite direction.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there are there's no question that incentives do motivate people to do what the incentives are providing, um, uh, what the incentives depend on. The problem is you can almost never, you know, you incentivize teachers for being excellent teachers. If you're an excellent teacher, you're going to get a bonus, or you're going to get promoted, or you're going to get tenure, or you're going to get to choose to teach in whatever school you want next year. Fine. What does it mean to be an excellent teacher exactly? You have to operationalize it in some way. Uh, Excellent teachers are teachers whose kids do well on standardized tests. Thank you very much. That's what I'm going to do. Now, it needn't be the case that um, doing, you know, initially the reason for giving standardized tests was as a way of assessing how classroom instruction, how effective classroom instruction was. You need feedback to know whether you're doing the job well. But the focus was really not on assigning responsibility to individual teachers. It was on assessing the system as a whole and guiding it to becoming uh, you know, more effective at teaching. As it became a tool to motivate individual teachers, the, all of a sudden there was this invitation to teachers to find a way to, to, uh, to gain the system. And the result is that standardized test scores stopped being an index of the things they were thing that was meant to be an index of. So is it, it, it seems to me close to inevitable that this will happen. And there are plenty of examples. You know, what what's the what's good motivation for a third grade teacher? Good motivation is the desire to inspire and excite and open young minds, right? That's why they become teachers. They want the you know, to, to sort sure. of seduce kids into the world of thinking and art and science and all that stuff and get them so that they're eager to come to school every day. Uh, That's what you want. And, you know, doing it to get a bonus at the end of the year is really a a terrible consolation prize. And you're quite right about it being self-perpetuating because what happens is that the good teachers either get the inspiration beaten out of them Uh, so that they're not good anymore, or they leave because they discover they're working in a system where they can't do what they think they should be doing. So you end up with mediocre teachers. And if you've got mediocre teachers, rules and incentives are probably the best you can hope for.
3: So wisdom is obviously a very complicated and nuanced entity. And in your book, one of the things that I, I really love that you explicitly and talk about and go into great detail is our tendency to lean towards a simple answer, a rule, which lands us in a position of really missing the nuance that wisdom brings. And wisdom, as you write, often means that we're balancing two virtues, and therefore there's nuance that's inherent in it. So one set of opposing forces um, that you talk a bit about is emotion versus logic. And you discuss how we we as a society tend to value logic in favor of emotion, right? And this is sort of like rule governed, you know, step one, step two, step three, and that we really minimize the value of emotion. Um, but you write that this really lands us in a place of quite limited wisdom. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the value of balancing reason and emotion and sort of how that relates to the importance of empathy.
0: Absolutely. Thanks. That's a great question. Actually, I think the problem is worse than as you described it we don't simply we don't simply value reason over emotion we actually think emotion is the enemy of reason mm-hmm. right,
1: right.
0: Uh, doc- medical students are maximally empathetic before their first day of medical school and then it goes straight downhill from there <laughs> and this is not an accident their teachers think That if they're thinking with their hearts instead of their heads, they're going to make mistakes. So you want to beat that out of them so that every, you know, the the heart they're examining is just a piece of meat. It's just a machine. And they need to see the heart as a machine and make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. And not get deeply involved in uh, the lives of the person whose heart that is. Because all that can do is screw up their judgment. And so you beat empathy out of medical students um, so that by the time they graduate, they have just the attitude you want, you know, coldly rational approach to every medical problem. Well, it's a terrible way to be a doctor. Um, uh, and it's not, it's not merely that, that emotion, ad, uh, adds something. It's, it adds an essential something. Um, uh, Think about uh, in the developed affluent world in our society, US society, we have essentially solved the problem of acute disease. We know how to fix almost everything. What we haven't solved is the the problem of chronic diseases that have to be managed and can't be cured. Hypertension, back pain, heart failure, uh, diabetes, how do you manage people, or how do you help people to manage themselves with conditions that will never go away? Uh, this is what modern medicine is in the, in the rich part world, in our world, managing chronic conditions. Now you can give your patient a list of things to do, uh, lose 20 pounds, quit smoking, stop drinking, exercise. Um, stop eating um, high fat foods, blah, blah, blah. You can give him that list. But of course, he already knows everything on the list. So the problem isn't that he doesn't know what to do. The problem is that he can't bring himself to do it. So how do you get patients to be partners in the management of their diseases? The answer is you do it by showing them that you actually care about their welfare, that, you, that the two of you are partners, that you're on the same side, that you're not merely handing out instructions that the patient has to follow. And so empathic patient care uh, leads to much more effective management of chronic, um, debilitating and extremely expensive to treat conditions. And it needn't be provided by the doctor. There are a couple of examples, one of which we write about in the book, where this You know, these doctors who run a clinic for poor people in Camden, which is one of the poorest cities in the United States, they brought in coaches who had no medical training, but knew how to empathize with patients. And so the the doctor's advice was mediated, was filtered through these coaches who developed relationships with the patients. And the result was astonishing. You know, I'm I, I understand you. I'm from your culture. I get where you're coming from. I know how hard this is. Let's work on this one thing. And slowly but surely, you build um, the resilience to enable these patients who, who, are, who are suffering multiple pathologies, typically, to rebuild their lives in a way that makes it easier to manage their various diseases. Um, doctors could be doing this. But they have all the empathy beaten out of them. So what we try to argue is that emotion is an is an essential um, concomitant of reason that when you're dealing with human beings, you need to understand not only how they think, but also how they feel. If you expect to deal with them in a way that's at, at, at all effective.
2: Right,
3: um, so emotion becomes sort of the, the bridge to building a relationship, and that relationship is yes. where the leverage to affect change comes. And what I Absolutely. love so much about that in, in the context of the medical profession, as well as other professions, is sort of the balance, right? Because you wouldn't want to let go of your medical knowledge and, and your know-how in terms of how to treat a given illness, but it, it, it is much more effective if you can leverage the emotional connection to be able to affect that change.
0: That's right. And, you know, and the, the, this point about about balancing that was so much a part of Aristotle is a good one. You can be too empathic. Uh, Jerome Grootman, who writes frequently for The New Yorker, uh, he's an oncologist at um, Harvard. Uh, he described a case of a young man who had a terrible bone cancer, very athletic young guy, and they had to amputate his leg Uh at the knee and it, and then there were these, uh, really debilitating chemotherapy drugs that he had to take. So the guy was in agony and groupman developed a relationship with this guy. Uh, they liked each other. They talked and he was trying to ease his suffering. And so he would come and, you know, do rounds and check on the guy. And the guy was struggling with the, with the treatment. Um, uh, but all of a sudden he spiked this 105 fever and became septic and nearly died. And the question is, why did this happen? And the answer is that Groupman had not turned him in his bed in the hospital because he wanted to minimize the suffering. You know, it was physically painful to move. And so he let him lie in his bed. And so the guy developed bed sores. Uh, And the bed sores became, um, you know, inflamed uh, and he had a systemic bacterial infection that almost killed him. So Grootman beat himself up for having been so concerned with how this guy was feeling that he practiced bad medicine. So you can have too much of this. There's no question about it. Um, And the trick is to find the balance. Um, You know, Aristotle talked about the meme which nowadays we think means the arithmetic average, but it's not what it meant to him. What it meant to him was the right amount. And that's frustratingly vague. What's the right amount? You know, courage is the mean between cowardice and recklessness. But what does that mean? Exactly. It means finding exactly the space on this continuum that's appropriate to this battle that you have to fight or this challenge of a, uh, a You know a supervisor that you have to take on in the workplace um, And it won't be the same point in the continuum with every Situation you face in fact, it will always be different right. uh, wise people are able to find the mean yeah. Unwise people can't
3: Yeah, well, I, I think that the dichotomy and then that idea of finding the balance is is so beautiful and I think also, so abstract and, and difficult, and one of the reasons that I think it is challenging gets to the point of some of your other writing, which I really love, uh, on the paradox of choice. Because I think that if you're constantly balancing, you know, uh, empathy and reason, and um, um, you know, autonomy and connection uh, and all of these other, um, you know, letting go versus autonomy and, you know, being a client advocate versus being a public servant, you're constantly having to make difficult choices. And I think that that might be a part of what feels so overwhelming about trying to do this work of developing practical wisdom, right? It's not just the fear of failure, but it, it can feel sort of overwhelming to think in any given situation uh, you know, there's not an obvious compass of which, which direction to go or what choice to make. And I have to sort of make a, you know, a hundred decisions every minute. What do you think yeah. about how paradox of choice fits into this model of practical wisdom?
0: So I think that is a terrific question and I appreciate your, mentioning my earlier work, but I think it, I mean, it is, it puts you under enormous pressure, if you're having to make a hundred decisions uh, a day or an hour, mm-hmm. um, when you, you have a therapy session with a client, all these issues arise right. and how can you even listen to the client while you're worrying about balancing aut- respect for autonomy and, um, uh, and you know, the imposition of advice that might be helpful and, uh, and so on. It, it's a nightmare. What makes it less of a nightmare, and we suggest this in the book, is that it gets easier and easier, more automatic, the more experience you have. There's a one, wonderful research done on uh, firefighters by a guy named Gary Klein, and he had this idea that what made it, this difference between an experienced firefighter and a novice is that the novice might have 15 hypotheses about how to fight this fire, and the experienced one only has two. You can just as soon as you get to the scene, you know, it's either A or B and you decide what between A and B. And so he followed these guys around to see how they actually made decisions in the heat of the moment. And after they successfully put out a fire, he'd ask them, like, how did you decide between A and B? When did you decide? How did you decide? And they would say, decide. There was no decision. We just did it. Well, what does that mean? What it means is that because of their experience, they were very good at recognizing patterns. And so they would show up at the scene of a fire and they would know instantly that the strategy to be followed is strategy A. And that's what they would follow. And afterward, they weren't cocky about this. After the fire was over, they would scrutinize the scene and go through their thinking processes to see whether they maybe had missed something that might make them better the next time. But the point is that it was effortless for them uh, because they've had so much experience making these decisions. So it's extremely hard. In fact, it seems impossible when you're starting out, which is why you need mentors. But the more you do it, the more automatic it becomes. Uh, The example we use in the book is a bike riding. You're riding a bike on a country road. You're making hundreds of decisions about when to brake, when to accelerate, uh, accelerate, how much to um, lean into a turn. You know, a million decisions. Uh, and and uh, if I asked you how many decisions you made on the bike ride, you'd say, "Well, what decisions? Right. I just rode my bike." Right. Well, a novice bike rider, this is it's just it's you can't imagine ever being good enough so that you'll be able to do it. Because you know, if you stop to think, you're gonna keep falling off the damn bike. So, so uh, that's the way wise people come to operate uh, and it takes a lot of the pressure off. Although I don't wanna suggest that you know, people always get it right. Sometimes you do fall off the bike, sometimes you get it wrong. But, but it would not be feasible to go through life torturing yourself with the complexity of every decision involving human interaction. So a lot of it comes, becomes relatively effortless. And I think you see this most clearly in parenting. I don't know if you've had this experience yet, but I mean, it's really hard to raise children.
3: It is. I have had the experience. I'm having it as, as we speak. speak. (laughs) Well, not, not in this exact moment, but.
0: (laughs) It really is hard. Um, every, everything is on the table, you know, it's moral, it, 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 you know, what's the right way to do it? Uh, morally, what's the right way to do it in terms of the welfare of my children? Should I treat all my kids alike? Is it fair to treat my kids differently? Um, all this is torturous and you're going to make a lot of mistakes as a parent if you haven't already. Uh, but it gets easier and easier the more experience you have because you discover, well, kid one was incredibly timid. And so I really kicked kid one in the behind now and then to get her to try stuff. Uh, And so kid two came along and I behaved in exactly the same way. And kid two is a holy terror. And so with kid two, I'm just putting my arms around kid two to make sure that she doesn't kill herself before (laughs) she gets to be an adolescent. So, you know, different, Different strategies are needed for different kids, but you don't mostly don't agonize about it You ease your way into it because you've uh, you know had this uh, wealth of experience
3: Right, And I think that there's something to be said for having faith that as you are doing a new uh, Engaging in a new role engaging in a new task that some of the overwhelm that comes with making all those choices and trying to find the right balance That 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 will ease over time. There's something so reassuring about that, that whatever new task you take on, whether it's parenting or a new job, that the experience really does contribute to that wisdom, which makes everything easier. And I think that that is uh, what you write so beautiful, uh, another thing that you write very beautifully about. Um, And life
0: is not easy. Life is hard. Hmm. (laughs) You know, life involving other people is a constant challenge. And so, you you know, pretending that you can solve every problem by just having the right set of scripts to follow is, is just distorting the nature of reality. Um, so you have to be prepared to struggle a little bit and suffer a little bit, uh, as you get through your life, interacting with friends, family, coworkers, clients, life is hard.
3: I think that that's so true. And, and kind of sounds like a tragedy on the one hand and on the other hand is so beautiful because I think that it's another one of those dichotomies that's inherent that if we are wise we can really take advantage of because I think some of the challenges interpersonally and just life experiences are really balanced by you know some of the gifts that really are a part of what is challenging right if you Uh, overcome, you know, a parenting challenge or if you, you know, make it through a difficult patch in a relationship, you're often feeling more skilled or closer to the other person. One of the things that I really focus on in my own writing is um, the fact that we often talk and think a lot about the conflict between work and family life. But what researchers have discovered, and I think what most working parents also know to be true, is that On the other side of that work-family conflict is this experience of work-family enrichment, that as hard as as it is to balance the two worlds and the two roles, that a lot of... um, Enriching life experiences and, and skill growth and opportunities to buffer stress in one world with you know positive experiences in the other is really inherent in the balance. So that conflict is sort of a part of, of this balance between in life that is really balanced with the, the gifts that come. I don't I, know if you have thoughts I, about that in the context I of practical wisdom. Hope.
0: I think there really there are real work life balance issues that have more to do with the demands that are imposed on people in the workplace that make it just not feasible to have any kind of life other than a work life but uh if if those can be kept within some kind of reasonable bounds I think you know it's really nice to be able to uh recover from a bad day at work uh with a good evening with your family and conversely uh, and I think the real problem comes if you have to be a different person at work than you are at home if the job makes you you know demands sort of a deformation of your character and so you're you're playing it's not just that you're playing different roles obviously in the workplace you're not you know raising kids but you would hope that the roles you play in the workplace are consistent with who you want to be as a person in the world and who you want to present yourself as to the to your, um, you know, your partner and your children. And often uh, I think people find themselves forced to be something other than themselves at work. And that creates a, a, a kind of tension that you could, sort of can never escape. Not everyone, you know, I was lucky my whole life to have a job where I could be me. Um, uh, not everybody is as lucky.
3: Right, it's uh, a privilege.
0: It, it really is a privilege, and I, you know, I was smart enough, I will pat myself on the back for this, for appreciating that it was a privilege that, that you know, I fell into and other people struggle to find um, uh, the things I did in the classroom and, you know, in the laboratory were completely different from the things I did as a parent and a, and a husband, but it was the same me. And I never, ever had to feel like I had to put on a mask or a disguise or something like that. And I have a feeling a lot of people who experience work-life balance issues, the, the real source of tension is that they are slipping out of one identity and into another, instead of being able to bring the same identity to different sets of demands does that make sense
3: it does make sense yeah yeah i I, i'm gonna have to reflect on that a little bit more because i you know it's in some of the conversations that i've had with individuals in in the research that i've conducted for the book project that i'm working on um some of them actually have quite divergent roles in their professional life versus their home life, and they actually appreciate that they get to activate really different parts of who they are, that it actually contributes to a balance. But I think that what you're saying is that it's not always that way, especially if you're sort of acting against your own value system or, or something yeah, like that.
0: They, they, I mean, being able to exercise you know, the relatively unused muscles um, in the workplace uh, is great. It, what's not great is if you actually have to, you know, sort of do do violence to who you think you are, yeah, yeah. who you want to be. Sure. Uh, and, you know, there, there are lots of, um, every professional school, and now I'm teaching in a business school, they have ethics courses, you know, medical ethics, legal ethics, business a- ethics. And it's always bothered me since I th- thought and continue to think that every course you take is an ethics course. Um, And um, and I've come to adopt a very simple rule for to help people decide whether or not they should do something that their workplace seems to demand of them. And the rule is, would you tell your children? I like that. And if your answer to that question is no, don't do it. And that's the sort of thing I mean um, about being forced to be a different person uh, at work, a different essential person at work than you are at home. And, you know, having to live through day after day and month after month of that kind of tension, I imagine can really wear people down.
3: Absolutely. So one of the areas um, that you end the book on uh, practical wisdom is, is about happiness and how happiness and wisdom are are really linked. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that, because I, I think that that's kind of a lovely place to land with in, in, in terms of why, why bother.
0: Right. So the, there's a lot of, as I'm sure you know, there's been an explosion of interest in what makes people happy mm-hmm. in the last 25 years. My distillation of that is that the two key ingredients to happiness, uh, and Freud said this, yeah,
3: love uh, and work are the cornerstones of our humanness. Yes. It's one of my favorite In, quotes.
0: Yes. Yeah. This is the one thing I think he unequivocally got right. <laughs> love and work. If your work is good and your relations to other people close to you are good, then everything else is just a detail. Um, as long as you sort of have a roof over your head and enough food to eat. Uh, Now, the point we make, we try to make in the book is that in order to do good work, you need to be wise, that good work, to the extent your work involves other human beings and virtually everybody's work does, you need to be wise to do it well, because you need to manage relations with other people. And certainly, in order to be a good friend, a good parent, a good spouse, a good child, you need wisdom. Because you need to figure out what the people in your life need at this moment, expect from you, and what you can deliver. Uh, And so wisdom makes for better social relations, and wisdom makes for better work. And if you've got good work and good social relations, Nothing else much matters. And so that's why we think that by cultivating wisdom, you are, in effect, cultivating happiness. And another, we can close with this idea. Aristotle thought it was a mistake to pursue happiness directly. He thought happiness is a byproduct of a life well lived. And so when you try to be happy, you will fail when you try to be a good teacher, a good parent, a good citizen, you will, much to your surprise, if you succeed at those things, end up being happy. So the, the secret to happiness is by being good at the roles you have to play in life. And then lo and behold, happiness is the bonus. Yeah. And I think this was an incredibly smart observation that he made, you know, 3000 years ago. It sort of makes me embarrassed. To be a psychologist, like what else was there to say that he didn't already say? Our field so is done. Is the <laughs> to try to make between wisdom and happiness.
3: I love that. So before we end, Barry, can you tell us um, what we can be looking forward to seeing from you next?
0: I'm not sure the, how to answer that. I <laughs> I retired from Swarthmore two years ago, and I'm teaching now part time at this business school, and I'm collaborating with a former student of mine on research on. Um, uh, on the paradox of choice. I've gotten back into that problem.
2: Oh, great. That's uh, so, so cool. So, you
0: know, there'll probably be a couple of articles on it in the next year or so that most of your listeners won't read because they'll be in professional journals. Um, and I am contemplating r- with another, uh, a f- former student and colleague writing a book on why incentives are the road to, frustration and failure, why nobody thinks about incentives in the right way. So if there is another book uh, in my future, it will be a book about what's bad about incentives. We'll see.
3: Okay. Well, that all sounds really interesting. And I will look in those professional journals for more stuff on The Paradox of Choice, which um, I should mention to listeners is a very wonderful book, one of my favorite um, books that I've read in the past several years. So I just want to say thank you so much, Barry, for taking the time to talk with me. Your book, Practical Wisdom, The Right Way to Do the Right Thing, is eye-opening, and I highly recommend it. And again, I also recommend your other books, including The Paradox of Choice. Um, So where should our Listeners look to find more information about you. We'll link to your TED Talks. Is there um, a website or or, or email that uh, yeah, they can?
0: Um, well, uh, the books are all available on Amazon. Okay. Um, the TED Talks are all available at the TED website. I have, a, I have a website, but I wouldn't recommend people go to it because I don't bother to update it. Okay. So- <laughs> You know, if you type my name into Google, you will find way more about me than you want. (laughs) So so I'm not worried. All right. uh, Well,
3: check out the TED Talks. Check out the books. They're wonderful. Thank you so much for spending the time with me today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. P-S-Y-C-H dot Music by John Gu and Susie Stevens.